Hello, you're listening to Film Greys. I'm Emmett. I'm Sam. We're from the folk rock and roll band Phil Graves, and we're here today to talk about cinema. This episode is part one of a continuous series that we're going to be doing, looking at films from exactly one century ago, 1921. What was cinema like? What was the world like? How was cinema in 1921 different to cinema in 1920? (laughs) That question we're not really going to be answering. But the other two, yeah. (laughs) And we've got to watch a bunch of really, really illuminating and interesting films. I will say right now to get it out of the way that I've enjoyed pretty much all of these films more than any film I've enjoyed from 2021 Mm. thus far. Yeah, we've watched films from all around the world from 100 years ago, from Japan, Scandinavia, Italy, Soviet Union and France for this episode. As he said, it's going to be an ongoing series and we're going to treat American, German, um, other films in subsequent episodes. We'd initially marked them out as all Anglophone films, but they're all silent, so that term doesn't really (laughs) relate. Yeah, exactly. But listener, if you're pissed off that you're not going to hear about Charlie Chaplin or Keaton or Harold Lloyd or David Walk Griffith on this episode, that's going to come at some point this year. In the not too distant future. And I'd fully intend to do this every year. Until, you know, I don't want to talk about Al Jolson actually. So maybe we can leave it off there. But we've got seven years before we have to get to that point. So that's okay. <laughs> this is going to be an ongoing Film Grays series. So we'll do it through the years. We'll still look at films 100 years ago. Next year, we'll probably be talking about Fritz Lang's Dr. Mabusa Der Spieler. Mm-hmm. And in six years, we can talk about... Joseph von Sternberg's Underworld. So don't unsubscribe. Listen, <laughs> This project came about after you picked Buster Keaton's The Goat and Victor Hoyerstrom's uh, The Phantom Carriage what? for our film club. That's how we're pronouncing it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think I can do that. <laughs> he changed his name to Seastrom when he moved to America to make the wind a few years later. Uh, it was a great double bill. Hoyerstrom, fine. Well, in my mind, the reason we started this was just because I was looking for an excuse to cover more songs off Tommy by The Who, and they've got the perfect song for it, which you probably already heard. Sure do, and you're going to hear it a shitload more times. (laughs) There's so much to get into with these films. I think it's going to be jokes, but maybe we should sort of sketch out the sort of prehistory of cinema up to this point. Sure. I guess like film had been like a cultural phenomenon for like 25 years by this point. The first paying audiences had seen films... In the mid-1890s, like, worldwide. And it really caught on, like, straight away. And by this point, it had matured as uh, an industry and a form of uh, entertainment. You've got cinemas that are, like, sort of modelled on theatres. You've got, like, the studio system, as you'd imagine it, with, like, stars. All the sort of logistical, complicated shit that goes into making films. You've got all the genres that we would be aware of, including sci-fi superhero movies, westerns, Horror films, literary adaptations, romances, wavy sort of psychedelic art films. Yeah. Dramas. Yeah, all the the genres. (laughs) Yeah. And like very culturally specific genres, like born out of sort of national cultural traditions and practices. I guess we'll see that in relation to uh, Japan specifically. And also film like uh, sort of becoming an art form is something we see in this period, um, especially in relation to like very like shot reverse shot like 
American style narrative filmmaking. Um, filmmakers at this point are like much like writers and artists in the interwar period, sort of striving for new ways of like representing their experience and like how they view the world and like all these disjunctures. If you were to do any history of film course, any like 10 week sort of course, you probably look at the silent era as one homogenous zone the first 30 years. Um, that would be like one chapter because no one wants to watch that shit seemingly apart from us. <laughs> when I did that, I was, you know, reading about like Tom Gunning, the cinema of attractions and like something like Victor Sjöström in the same week, mm. even though I feel like there's a huge break between that early sort of cinematograph thing a lot of people would like pay their doubloons or whatever i don't know (laughs) i don't know what currency they were paying uh the pre-decimal currency in this country they'd pay to see the projector they'd pay to see the piece of technology and the films that were projected were sort of the second thing you'd think about over the technology of it but i guess it had been somewhat standardized and like people they weren't scared of the train <laughs> coming straight for them anymore they wanted to see the train yeah they wanted to be entertained it's so hard to sort of unpack like the sort of mythological aspects of early film history i think we should devote a whole episode to it at some point but yeah you're exactly right in saying that film was like normal by this point cinema was normal it was becoming like a legitimate practice and like a fact of life almost cinemas were everywhere Film industries sprang up everywhere, as we'll see in new nation states and old ones, um, often taking on like specific characteristics and always responding to what's going on in the world around them as well. For sure. Several of the films we're going to be talking about today, which I think is why it's a good one to start with, are the first films, as we understand them, the first extant feature films made in that Mm. country. That's the case for Japan. That's the case for Slovakia, which we'll talk about on the next episode. But then that could also be a fallacy, right? Because we're in a really good position right now, probably luckier than anyone at any point in history who wanted to do one of these sorts of studies. Because everything that we've watched is on YouTube on some like weird silent film channel. Some of that may be untranslated into titles or very truncated. But big fact of like silent film and early film scholarship is that a lot of these films weren't made for posterity. They were made to play on the projector until that nitrate stock had you know run its course and you couldn't really watch it anymore yeah several of these films something we touched on in the john ford episode have been discovered in the 70s and 80s just in national film archives yeah mislabeled but the fact is that 80 percent, even higher maybe even 90 percent of films made in this era don't exist anymore yeah it's true it's a heyday for film preservation at the moment um especially in the digital era and you're right in noting that we watch these things all like sort of mediated by like the digital sphere like they're all on websites and they're all like curated in the past like if you're a film scholar as you said like you'd have to go to some archive or a library or like a film museum to watch like a shitty print and you'd have to know how a projector works (laughs) yeah and and now not only can we watch them but the copies are always getting better even superseding the quality in which they originally would have been exhibited but yeah we're extraordinarily lucky to watch some of these films and yeah i hope you dear listener follow up and watch them then we will include like a full filmography and some links some of the best quality ones we could find so sam you're going to the cinema one of the six cinemas on rice lip high street in 1921 (laughs) you've got um contemporary hits like the sheik of araby or ralph vaughan williams's the lark ascending ringing in your head you're thinking oh i really want to read that book ulysses that everyone says is really scandalous and people are going to jail over printing 
maybe you heard some crazy story about how someone went to a music hall and saw someone saw a woman in half. Maybe you're rejoicing the end of the Franco-Turkish war. Maybe you're suffering the effects of the most intense geomagnetic storm of the 20th century. Maybe you're really excited about the first golf international tournament, which was played in 1921. Maybe you're really happy that Albert Einstein just won the Nobel Prize for Physics because he's your boy and he's going to go on to do great things. Maybe you're Swedish, you want to go see the Phantom Carriage, and you're happy that your mum can now vote and your dad isn't going to get hanged anymore. Uh, as a historian, I'm happy that Miklos Joncho has just been born. Right, absolutely. A lot of big birth this year <laughs> for the film Grey's Extended Universe. Harry Carey Jr., Dirk Bogart, Satchajit Ray, Stanislaw Lem, and Raymond Williams, rest in peace. Maybe you're happy about the truce in the Irish War of Independence, or horrified by the Tulsa massacre. Maybe the onset of Cubism, Dadaism, <laughs> Surrealism, all these foundational moments are really blowing your mind. Or maybe, like you and me today, you're looking forward to the end of a global pandemic. Well, I guess they don't have cinema restrictions, right? This is the main thing for me, going through this thing, but those people who were, you know, trying to avoid the invisible enemy of the Spanish influenza, were going to the cinemas, no masks. Yeah, not to disrupt that beautiful bit of poetry, um, but it was a time of uh, increased, like, sort of regulation. I mean, over the last, like, 10 years, up to 21, like, this is when you're seeing, like, cinema become, like, sort of legal phenomenon as much as a cultural one or, like, an industrial one. Right. Also, that just reminds me of, like, have you seen the photographs of people wearing masks in football stadiums during the Spanish flu? No. Nah, it's really interesting. <laughs> but I don't actually know about cinemas, like, but, I mean, they did face a lot of disruption before this period during the war. <laughs> But <laughs> Donald Trump last year, remember that guy? Last year he was like, maybe we could uh, use some sort of light therapy to get rid of the coronavirus and blast people with light to, uh, you know, destroy the particles. And I guess cinema could have been an answer. Maybe it's no coincidence that the end of the global pandemic happened at the same time as people going to see things like The Phantom Carriage or Il Womo Mechanical or... Louis Deluc, the man who invented the word cineast in 1921, his beautiful fievre, which I can't mm. wait to talk about in about an hour's time, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's so much historical context to sort of cram in at this point. Uh, it's sort of impossible. I hope we've sketched it out in a sort of coherent way. It's a whole different world as well as like looking very similar, as well as like being like more standardised and like uh, sort of regulated. Like there were like sort of health and safety perils in filmmaking. We read some stories about like lead performers dying in production in mm. rivers and stuff like that. But the location photography is Peng, so... What Definitely. can you say? And we wouldn't have a film like Moritz Stiller's Johan under current health and safety practices that film sets all over the world adhere to. I think the absence of organised labour in the film world is a huge difference between now and then and does make things feel different. But the studio system, in America at least, and these national film industries were nascent and would go on to be the glorious uh, employment sectors that they are today. <laughs> Having said everything was pretty much structurally the same, besides like health and safety concerns and labour relations yep. and flammable you know. stock. <laughs> I guess the big difference is that uh, we're talking about silent film today. Silent film, I guess, is like a misnomer. All the sort of mm. reflections on silent cinema 
bring this to bear, whether films were accompanied by organs, you know, whirlitzers that would have like gunshot sounds and mm. telephone rings and stuff like that built into them. Silence in the world is a myth, basically. Sure. It's, because like, it's interesting with, with Jonas Mikas, right, where he would always project silent films with no soundtrack at the anthology film archives, which like, that's probably the first place that ever happened. Or that was like a really deliberate decision in terms of sort of deconstructing film revival of early cinema right yeah but one of the films we're going to talk about had a full-on score written and composed for screenings of the film you know had cues on it and stuff like that and was written to be performed by an orchestra alongside the images mm. on screen which is like the most difficult thing a conductor could ever have to do there's one that i watched that had like really funny sound effects in the youtube soundtrack like put in not just gunshots but i'm talking like when someone falls over you hear like a ah! But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or like someone getting whipped and you hear like a stick. Barbarian sound studio vibes. Right. And then some of them don't have a soundtrack to speak of. Some of them, if you watch them on increased speed on the YouTube setting, sound really, really, really crazy and like no music oh. I've ever heard before, you know. Yeah. <laughs> not to not to let down our critical faculties early, but I'm going to admit that I did watch some of these films at an increased speed. But then all of these films the shooting speed was different to the speed it's projected at anyway so like often when you go see a silent film in the cinema it's projected at the wrong speed so yeah. i'm trying to do my quarantine version of that basically yeah i mean look when you read a book sometimes you're gonna read it slow sometimes you're gonna read it fast <laughs> why should not the same apply to silent cinema so, sometimes you're looking we at a painting you just you stare at the but I think it's instructive that we're going to start this episode by looking at two films from Japan because they had a very, very specific and distinct approach to film exhibition and the sound of film in the 1920s. Yeah, they sure did. I was listening to the Important Cinema Club recently talking about like these Ugandan films, the like Who Killed Captain Alex and Crazy World, Wakali Wood, they call it. They're all screened with a VJ who like narrates, even though these are sound films, but he's just like talking over the top and like lampooning the actors and the viewers at the same time or whatever to narrate through, which has been described as just like a really unforgettable, insane experience. And I guess in Japan, <laughs> they had something similar going on as well, right? Yeah, a figure. I guess inherited from theatrical traditions called the Benchy would basically narrate and produce like a lot of texture for film screenings. I guess they could be so influential that they could, you know, basically steal the show. I'm going to read a quote from this book, The Long View, An International History of Cinema by the British documentary maker Basil Wright. I'm not sure when he was born, I guess like in the early 20th century and he basically lived mm -hmm. through all of this stuff. And he's actually quoting uh, this guy, Oswald Wind a European whose childhood was spent in Japan. I can recall all those silent Hollywood epics of the Cecil B. DeMille school made glorious by the wailings and palpitating enthusiasm of the Benchy. This gentleman by no means confined himself to merely reproducing dialogue, but enlarged his function until he is practically the Japanese version of the cinema organ, holding in reserve a repertoire of noises which would unquestionably have embarrassed a Wurlitzer. And then he goes on to, you know, quite colourfully describe how, uh, like, a really shitty B-movie was, like, made glorious by what he called the palpitating wailing of the Oriental. Um, <laughs> but Yeah, that is the unfortunate <laughs> element to it. I mean, when you were relating that to me, you made it sound like uh, Hantarash or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
it's it's hard to imagine how like transformative that is and you know yeah it's like the people that can imitate a truck or whatever um this was also a phenomenon in the west as well though uh people barkers would be in cinemas mm. and they'd like narrate i guess that relates to literacy rates and you know intertitles would often be read out by audience members for people that couldn't read them but sometimes they'd have like I, yeah like an mc that would read this but the japanese tradition is so specific i guess the benshi and both these films we're talking about come from like theatrical traditions as well jiraiya the hero is like a 21 minute I've, the genre is called uh jedi geeky like uh the sort of like mm -hmm. historical drama sort of costume drama samurais um like edo shit you know like the other side of the spectrum the like modern day drama uh gendai geeky is what it's called which is i guess a tradition or something that we'll see in, in these uh, European films as well, like trying to make films that reflect like uh, social life, like class mm. relations, like um, social issues. And that one's actually based on some European stories. But the Benchy in both of these films would have been getting involved in a pretty serious way. Do you want to start with Jiraiya the Hero? Because it was so jokes. Yeah. And the other one was so sad. I mean, Souls on the Road is um, 91 minutes and Jiraiya the Hero is 21 minutes. As I said, it's a sort of, it feels way more truncated than a lot of the other films we've seen and is a sort of it's almost like a selection of scenes that are contingent on special effects like him flying or him transporting or him doing some martial arts like in a very sort of Dragon Ball Z style way it is so that because <laughs> I always struggle with watching that or like any of these sort of like fantastical animes because i just couldn't really tell i'm gonna out myself as an idiot or whatever but i found them really hard to follow because they have such a different narrative logic to like even cartoons from the west or whatever and the way that like the pageantry of like martial arts is dramatized you know so you do have this dude transforming into a frog several times in this film oh yeah using frog magic <laughs> yeah that's a brilliant bit of practical effect it's so cool yeah <laughs> <laughs> and you do have these like really cool choreographed fight scenes that are shot from like pretty far away that are like very arresting but they're also like you know then you get the close-up of like someone stroking their chin and like looking at the camera in like a bizarre way but it does feel like watching Dragon Ball Z is what I was trying to say and it's as predicated on familiarity with those sorts of storytelling modes even though it's also a literal hagiography and like opens with him as a child and like the sort of origin story of his family getting fucked up. Sure, this is a folktale that mm -hmm. is like a superhero story, basically. Mm -hmm. He has superpowers, the aforementioned ability to turn into a man-eating frog. Um... <laughs> An enormous frog, not a little, not a little yeah, frog. Yeah, yeah. It's fucking huge. Um, yeah, it's one of them ones where, I don't know, I, I went to the... Um, the manga exhibition at the British Museum uh, a few years ago now, I guess. Um, God, how time has flown. <laughs> you know? And the point of that was to show like real continuity between um, these theatrical forms, like old like sort of hand-drawn um, illustrations um, on like scrolls and stuff of folk tales, or, like pictographic interpretations of them. They have a sort of cartoon comic logic that like, you know, a flow to them. And this is the exact same, this is a film inter interpretation of the exact same thing with all the sort of fantastic elements, uh, playfulness. Um, I guess it's like conservative fundamentally, but um, sure. watching it now, like, it's jokes. It's really entertaining. I think characters in uh, in Naruto are named after these um, popular figures. Right. I, I haven't watched it, but um, 
you know, you can watch this shit on YouTube. Like, that's the point. Like, or pr- you know, I'm going to tag every one of these conversations with, with that fact. Like, yeah. yeah, you'll enjoy it. And unlike Naruto, you don't have to watch a thousand of them to understand what's going on. <laughs> yeah. It's a nice, concisely told story with some, like, pretty jokes, fight scenes. And the in-camera effects and, like, the manipulation of film, something we'll keep on coming back to also in Souls on the Road. Yeah, um, double exposures, him, like, sort of fading out of the scene, him flying yeah. against a, a sky. Yeah. The cut screens, like, turning into the frog We're in a puff of smoke. It's like some Melier shit, you know? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. it's still, like, it has a very distinctly Japanese flavour. And I guess could go back to our original point that it has like sort of image logic throughout it like the narrative would have really been enlivened by this like mc figure the benchy filling in the gaps absolutely i could have used the personal benchy uh, <laughs> when watching it to clarify when exactly like oh this is him as as a as a man etc he's about to use his frog powers now get ready <laughs> you know, it would make it <laughs> It'll make it so much more jokes. Storytelling did feel quite abrupt, though, much like in these sort of manga adaptations that I've seen, you know. I think it's because it's like a sort of almost liminal type of media, Jiraiya mm. Hero. We spoke about Too Much Johnson when we discussed Citizen Kane recently, mm. which is a film by Orson Welles, one of his, I guess, his earliest, is it his earliest surviving film? It is, yeah. And that feels extremely fragmented and the footage is only like a chase basically and stuff that like goes beyond the sort of limits of the stage. And it almost feels like um, Jiraiya the Hero is the same. And I think it is like it could have been incorporated into like a sort of dramatic production. But I guess eventually could have also performed that role. But you're right, it does feel very truncated compared to Souls on the Road, which maybe we can move on to now as like a counterpoint. So Souls on the Road by Minoru Murata. Also from 1921, as I don't, I don't even need to say. <laughs> yeah, it's so great. I don't need to. I don't need to memorize any dates for this episode. It's fucking great. This film is the earliest extant Japanese feature film. It's an adaptation of Maxim Gorky from Russia. His play, The Lower Depths, which was also adapted on film by Jean Renoir and Akira Kurosawa. I didn't know that. It's also drawn from this guy Schmidt Bonn, uh, mm-hmm. a German writer. Uh, so I guess it's sort of composite of like European sort of humanist narratives. It actually has a sort of strong like sort of Christian humanist bent Def- to it, which is like quite interesting. Definitely, but I think that that Japanese Catholicism was like you know moving quite mad in the in the nineteen twenties. I believe <laughs> sure was. <laughs> This film was really sick. Um, it's about sort of three distinct groups of homeless people or mm. people who are on the road. One's a pair of robbers who have the sort of more slapdash like entertainment sequences. That's the um, hidden fortress vibes. Right. George Lucas. A hundred percent. This film has a lot of those um, wipe transitions that Kurosawa was so fond of that George Lucas yeah. then ripped yeah. off. You've got that even, I don't even know how you do that on film. I guess it's, you literally have to manipulate something. But splicing you, of some sort. Yeah. yeah. But you have one scene wiping into another, which is cool. You've got a failed musician and his wife and kids playing like Western classical music, right? And there's a flashback sequence where he humiliates himself on stage because I'm, I mean, I'm sure he's pretty good. <laughs> But his whole career is fucked up. He like fainted or something. Yeah, and yeah, then, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. They were like, "Oh, you're not up to it." I, the, the violin is used as like a sort of almost Proustian object of reverie, which yeah. is really interesting, and as a sort of um, through line to reminiscences. And as you said, yeah, the flashback is like a real important um, narrative and structural device in this film. 
which is novel in a sense, like, although a recurring theme in these films, like. It was novel for everyone who was doing flashbacks. But it's really interesting because he's, like, haunted by his former self. He takes his wife and kid, like, out of the city to go visit his, like, in a sort of, like, prodigal son setting. Like, he goes back to see his father, who he hasn't seen in years and years. And he's, like, really ashamed of himself because he's a failed musician. And in a couple of sequences, like, the ghost of his former musician self appears in the room next to him using that like double exposure, like classic special effect. And it's really, really heartrending, you know, he's, he's let himself down his like inner child or like his, he's like a different person to who he was supposed to be is what this is trying to say. So they go to see his father, they're ultimately rejected, but much like Ugetsu Monogatari by Mitsuguchi, it has this magic element to it where like the presence of spirituality permeates the whole thing even in this sort of like historical social realist storytelling there's also Mm -hmm. a female protagonist who looks like a character straight out of no theater with the like crazy Mm. white face makeup and stuff one thing that's interesting about that though is that much like i don't know elizabethan theater Mm. or something Mm. um pretty much up until this point female parts have been played by male actors Mm. called ayama as a i guess a sort of conservative theatrical tradition but yeah as you said there are women actors in this film which just goes to show how different it is to i guess jiraiya as a sort of mode of filmmaking at that point in history they're such a interesting like sort of surviving diptych really representing both sides of the sort of narrative tradition in in japanese cinema absolutely you can watch both of them on youtube and really it's a sensational double will you can do both of them in under two hours i was really gassed to see the Souls on the Road, because I remember encountering it in Mark Cousins' The Story of Film. He proselytizes about how this is like the start of a whole filmmaking language. And it's like, oh, look at this. This is like unbelievably uh, modern. Well, we're going to see that manifesting internationally right. in this episode, aren't we? But still, it made me cry. And it was full of like really interesting stuff. I loved the intertitle that had the little loaf of bread. Um, but li- dear listener, please check it out. You won't regret it. I'm really interested to see Kurosawa's adaptation of the same source material or some of the same source material. But, you know, I hate actors, but like the acting in <laughs> some of these silent films was just, just took my breath away. I mean, Souls on the Road, so, so oh my God, <laughs> Souls on the Road is um, definitely more like sort of naturalistic, mm. although the filmmaking, you know, we've referred to some of the techniques like the wipes and there are lots of iris ins and outs, another technique that we'll see a lot throughout the films we're discussing (laughs) really worth checking out but But it's also like we don't even know if this was the first feature film made in japan this is just like the first extant one but it will remind you of loads of japanese films you've watched any classic like ozu even in the framing is pretty you know pretty sick if you like ozu Mm. or mitsuguchi or kurosawa this is the start of the it's an essential yeah Yeah, step in the sort of genealogy especially for like translating all the crazy like Japanese theater techniques to film, but how it doesn't feel like a piece of filmed theater compared to a couple of the like French or German films that we watch. Uh, all the directors you just mentioned worked within the the genre that this film basically content. Yeah, you know, established almost. Again, like it seems problematic to make like very assertive statements like that because so much is lost. Yeah. Especially Japan, an especially instructive book that we turned to while preparing for this episode was the Oxford, um, what is it, Oxford History of World Cinema? Yeah. And, I mean, the title of the chapter on Japan in, in that book is Before the Great Kanto Earthquake of 1923, uh, which was, like, 
uh, basically so many films are lost, but I, I feel even at that earlier stage, so many were lost. Yeah. <laughs> Like straight from the get go, so we're really lucky to be able to watch and compare these two super interesting films. Well, they weren't self consciously made for posterity, right? They were all entertainment and like traveling sure. pieces of yeah, like captured performance, you know. But they are also very, very convenient starting points for like the last hundred years of Japanese like film and TV. Jirai the Hero does feel like watching a sort of animated fantasy serial even though it's standalone yeah. and I don't believe it's part of like a proper saga because it covers a lot of ground in 20 minutes, you know, 40 years, life, death, turning into a frog. still listening to film grays this is our first installment of a hundred years ago and we're going to move now from japan in 1921 to scandinavia Mm. instead of being the very genesis of a film industry we're going to talk about the work of a couple of directors who had made dozens and dozens and dozens of films and had been for the last 10 years but reached um what is considered to be like a high point in their work in that these are films that have wikipedia articles and are considered to be important yeah this is said to be the golden age of swedish filmmaking at least but right. i think there's like a clear um sort of scandinavian tradition that has been in place yeah it's like sort of mature by this point what you just said about japan though i would say victor hoistrom Moritz Stiller, and there's another guy that, whose name I can't remember. Three, like, big directors, though, were all signed up in, like, the early 1910s by this, like, mm. sort of vertically integrated Swedish film company. Um, I think the guy's name was Charles Magnusson, the, um, like, sort mm-hmm. of business mogul behind it. And they all made these, like, literary adaptations. But Nikatsu was, like, doing the same thing in Japan from the same time. Uh, yeah. So while Souls on the Road was, like, a real formative film, like, it's hard to do these things justice because, like, their histories are so, like... I feel like it's hard to do these things justice. Um, so apart from the pioneers of silent cinema, like the Grace Canard and, like, a lot of, like, female-directed films, on Netflix, if you search silent film, at least on UK Netflix... There's about 10 Swedish films, including Ingeborg Holm and a film by Carl Dreyer and a film by Victor Sostrom, however you, you choose to pronounce his name. They're just on Netflix in like really crisp restoration. Yeah, that's really So we're really going to have to do an episode on those at some point. I don't know what has led this to be the case. Obviously, I would love there to be hundreds of silent films on Netflix, but this is a proper curio. You know? I tried to figure out why it was the case and I didn't really find any sort of like press release or anything. I just found a like silent film forum of mm. people being like, oh, like I was going to cancel my subscription but I found all Sir Arne's treasure on Netflix. <laughs> We're also choosing to eschew Leaves from Satan's Book by Carl Dreyer, which we'll talk about for a further episode. But I think that film came out in 1920 anyway. So Yeah, I think that's the... Although the chronology of so many of these films, like you see errata all the time. Yeah, it's true. When you're looking at dates or just like when these films come up in like 
monographs or whatever, the dates like differ a lot. <laughs> so also the production and distribution gap yeah. sometimes factors into that as well and like sort of making it a bit more course, ambiguous. And just getting the film developed and, you know, made. But this time next year, listener, we're going to be talking about Haxon. So that's going to be fucking lit. Yeah. But these films that we're talking about, Johan by Moritz Stiller and The Phantom Carriage by Victor... <laughs> whatever whatever you choose to pronounce his name are pretty sophisticated and like don't feel like early cinema no they're mature films that are doing a thing with like a clear narrative structure they're literary films like yeah and um, they're the culmination of that like sort of integration of national literary traditions into the film industry that we'll see when we talk about uh, germany as well they're prestige films, yeah. like that's the, yeah. and they still have that veneer, even if they're, well, for me, I think these films are sort of boring, actually, the Swedish ones, <laughs> the Scandi ones. They're all very like, man, nature, the river, <laughs> like, it's cool, but yeah. they're very prosaic. Well, I think they're quite different. Do you want to start with uh, You Don't Mess With The Johan? <laughs> yeah, go on. This is like, um, a, I don't know, it reminded me of like Virgin Spring or something. Sure. But... Yeah, woodsman with the axe. Yeah, the acting vengeance. The the main feature of Johan as a sort of um, love triangle, abduction sort of story set mm-hmm. in um, a rural sort of fishing or is it like a sort of logging? They're they're near a river anyway. Community. It's logging. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the first sequence is like a sort of dam. What's the opposite of a dam raising ceremony? <laughs> <laughs> but they 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 got rid of a whole dam for this film and you see like the film is all about the river mm. and all about the setting much like the passion of anna by ingmar bergman mm. which is set in a pretty similar location and also features like a deranged person going around with an axe and a love triangle and all all of these things it reminded me a lot of that but there's more to it than just being a precursor to bergman oh i mean the most impressive thing about all these films is just the location shooting i think and the fact that they are um sort of literary and poetical in like a sort of like reverie of nature way i just find them so phantom carriage is interesting because that has like more of an urbane setting and deals with very different Mm -hmm. issues to these other films like johan and um this norwegian film um what had a danish director um markens grow like growth of the soil which is like again like sort of pastoral like sort of mastering the landscape a guy goes and settles land sort of dry but like it, again, it's like a literary thing. Like it makes sense. Like these Scandies are writing books about like going and living in the mountains and like starting communities and like the dialectical issues in that. And they convey those preoccupations well in these films. Phantom Garage is sure. way more fantastical and urbane, and that's I think why it's more memorable at least than the other ones. But it's still so didactic and like Dickensian in its sort of narrative structure. Okay, so the Phantom Carriage is a sort of fantasy film. It starts out with there's there's some more stuff I want to say on Johan, but yeah, yeah, of of course. Sorry, I thought the acting was really sick in Johan. To be honest, like it conveyed a lot with these uh, faces. I guess you know, Swedish theater, the Scandinavian theater mm. was uh, world leading at the time, right? Ibsen, yeah, exactly. And you know, in terms of like pre-Freudian mm. uh, psychological narratives mm. or whatever, this is something that's clear that really comes to bear in this, where you know. You're looking at these people's faces and the interiority, even despite there not being like any actual concrete dialogue, mm. you still get into these people's mind states and how those are paralleled by the landscape. Mm. 
Man, I've got to throw out Peter Watkins's Edward Monk film just for correlating with those like sort of uh, ideas, even though it's like so different. Like, but um, you know, it's the it's the Monk and like Strindberg and all that like yeah, sort of milieu, exactly. like yeah. Edward Monk may have gone to see all of these films in the cinema, and the like interior intensity is something that people were interested in at this time, I believe. Sure, I loved reading Ibsen. I got really into him a few years ago and I couldn't escape Ibsen when looking at The Phantom Carriage. Mm. We watched it for Film Club and Albert had really interesting interpretations. Again, talking about this sort of pre-Freudian-ness to it or like where redemption isn't a thing. Like the the main character is an asshole, and there is like a degree of like hereditary psychological problems, which is a big thing in like Ghosts, for example, and a lot of other of these Ibsen, uh, Uncle Vanya, mm. where you're not expected them to like redeem themselves in some sort of like Hollywood character development sense or whatever. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The Phantom Carriage is about, it starts out with a few like drunkards sitting around in a town and they hear about the urban legend of how it is very like folky as well as being pretty urbane. Mm. It's like a classic folk tale. What do you call it? the wagoner or the carriage, yeah. the carriageman? What do you? <laughs> yeah, the wagoner. I think is the. Yeah, the Grim Reaper it comes around, and if you're, if it's your destiny, then you got to drive the carriage, you know. And this guy doesn't want to die. He doesn't want to pass, shuffle off the mortal coil, mm. and pass into the realm of the undead. So he's trying to resist the driver of the phantom carriage. The main character is played by Victor Sirstrom, Seastrom, or however you pronounce it, who I guess is probably most famous to modern viewers as the star of Ingmar Bergman's Wild Strawberries, where he plays himself at the end of his life. Mm. Looking back, uh, he's about to receive an award. Wild Strawberries is fucking amazing. It's got one of the maddest dream sequences. Mm. Bergman, I guess, was like really... He would have been a, a teenager, when these when these films were coming out but they had such a huge influence on him and he really did see himself as trying to bury these motherfuckers or whatever mm. the influence of phantom carriage is also obvious in bergman's the seventh seal where max von sydow's character plays a game of chess with death for his life he also made a film very very late in his career the image makers which i haven't managed to see but i'd really like to which is about the making of the phantom carriage and it's like a drama it's like a mank style great or uh, Curtis on Netflix, one of these sorts of films. I'd really like to watch it. But I think we got a lot out of watching it for Film Club because everyone did have a kind of different take on it, be that just like, this is the oldest film I've ever seen and like yeah. the special effects are mad. Or Yeah, like... uh, can I just jump in there to illustrate yeah, please, that please. point then? Um, yeah. uh, we've already mentioned the use of double exposure in these films as you know, a mm. way of superimposing um, an image onto another, you know, like a base image. In this film, it's especially spectral, you know, by nature of the sort of Grim Reaper-y imagery. It's really impressive, actually. Again, to like invoke like the Melier sort of style, mm. like of just like very rudimentary, almost special effects. But like when you see it, it's still impressive. I thought this film was pretty impressive on a number of levels, not just because it has a sequence that Stanley Kubrick ripped off in The Shining of like the vengeful husband trying to Again, he's got an axe and he's trying to break down the door. Yeah, it's to his Johnny. Get to like the screaming. Yeah, exactly. That's in this film. And Stanley Kubrick was a charlatan. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just playing. I think The Shining's pretty good as well. In the film club, like we watched two different versions of it. Some of us watched it with a score by Matty Bai, which was kind of a more sort of normal score. And then the version I have on DVD, the score was by KTL, which is Stephen O'Malley from Sun O. Mm. 
you know, the sort of drone noise mm. rock band and someone else. Didn't really like the score. I found it quite annoying. But I guess it did something to convey, you know, it did something to interact with the folksiness and the intensity of the performances. And I think if you look at it as like a very sophisticated piece of acting and filmmaking, like that I didn't see a better acted or like more assured film in this survey than mm. The Phantom Carriage in a way. Mm. It's a mature film for sure. And it is sophisticated. I think, I don't know. I found it too like Christmas Carol-y and I wanted it to be more like creepy. And uh, we're going to talk about Fritz Lang's Destiny later. Another yeah. 1921 film that um, has a personification of death or the Grim Reaper. And uh, well, no, it, no spoilers, it pales in comparison but... to Destiny. It's not as good as that. Yeah. That's one of the best films from any year. This is more didactic and like literary and like very early 20th century. It's radical in no way. I guess it's sort of humanistic and like mm-hmm. it broaches questions of like social welfare in, in the early 20th century. Yeah. And like stuff like alcoholism. Yes. But didacticism is definitely the word that comes to mind. But also technically very impressive. And yeah, I, again, I would stress that it, it's sort of counter to the other Scandi films that I've seen from this period then in that like, you know, they are all about nature and like natural sort of landscapes and that interface. Whereas this just, it's just a whole other vibe, you know. <laughs> Both Stiller and Seastrom emigrated to the US shortly after making these films. Uh, Stiller, I guess, is most famous for like his work with Greta Garbo, mm. making her like an international screen sensation. And Victor Sostrom made The Wind a few years later, a late silent film set in America, set in like the West, in like a shack. And it is one of the most intense things I've ever seen. Cool. The Wind. The Wind, yeah. It's a Western, or it's like a sort of homesteader. Uh, it's really intense. Cool. Uh, we'll talk about that in seven years. <laughs> Great. Do you want to tell me about this Aston Nielsen Hamlet film you watched then? Sure. Aston Nielsen's an interesting figure. I, I said earlier that like this is the period of like star power sort of mm-hmm. emerging. I guess mm-hmm. we'll talk about that more when we talk about America, but we'll also uh, touch on it when we talk about German cinema. I guess the sample size that we're discussing for the other national film industries is just like too small to like really paint a good picture. But the point is, Aston Nielsen was a huge star, a sort of... Uh, she was a proper sex symbol, wasn't she? Yeah, for sure. I, I found this really thirsty um, Bela Balage um, <laughs> quote that I just thought was hilarious, published in like a cine magazine mm. a couple of years after this film. It's... <laughs> I wouldn't really call it a Danish film. Um, It's like a big, like, sort of German-Danish co-production. But she, Aston Nielsen, was the sort of leading force behind it. And it is actually really interesting on a number of levels. It's not really based on Shakespeare Hamlet. It's based on this, I don't know if it's, like, late 19th century American, like, sort of literary theorist, sort of literary scholar, (laughs) right? Mm. Um, That, like, had this thesis that Hamlet was a woman. Right. I assume it's sort of quite spurious, um, sort of pseudo-historical sort of stuff, but I didn't go too deep into it. But she plays Hamlet. There's like a relationship with, um, I guess it's Horatio, Mm -hmm. and like just other elements, as well as like the sort of core plot of Hamlet. So it's interesting. And in terms of the stylings, it was pretty lit, to be honest. I guess it has that sort of expressionist bent to it that we'll discuss like in detail soon. Mm Mm-hmm. 
But suffice to say, there's lots of sort of heavy eye makeup, chiaroscuro shadows and lighting, Mm -hmm. but also sort of castly interiors and um, quite mannered performance style. It's quite long. It must have been pretty fucking long at the time, coming in at, I think, just over two hours. Yeah, what's that, like eight reels? Would have been a serious thing yeah, to carry around. Yeah, yeah. Serious yeah, piece sure. of nitrate. Yeah. But, I mean, she was a huge star, so oh. I guess, I mean, she produced it. It must have been like a passion project to some mm. extent. I'm going to watch it. Yeah. I'd like to see some of our other films as well. There's a few that look quite interesting. And I'm interested. I like Hamlet, you know. I'm interested. Especially in a Danish take on a Danish story. Well, <laughs> that's the thing. I'm not sure how Danish she influenced on on its uh, thesis is. But at the same time, it is one of the most interesting Shakespeare interpretations I've seen on screen. Come, uh, I guess it's not really a Shakespeare adaptation and more like going back to a shared stock or whatever. Mm-hmm. But worth checking out. When I walked We're now going to talk about Soviet cinema in 1921. Obviously, we know what happened in 1917. We love to think about it. We also sort of know what happened in 1905. <laughs> Looking at uh, the history of 1921 world events is marked by like the foundation of a bunch of communist movements. Like mm. the CCP was founded in China in 1921, in Poland, in Portugal, in Italy. It was, you know, a time of awakening. People looking at the Russian Revolution and being inspired and, you know, a collective dream of a better world. Mm. There's a film called Sickle and Hammer that I really wish I had seen, but didn't have a means to watch it. But that looked like a bit more successful in being a piece of agitprop, <laughs> I guess. But Zygavertov had made their first film by this time. And, you know, we associate it with like Eisenstein and like other Soviet films that we've looked at on this show already and will look at over the course of this series. But we did both watch a Georgian film, The Murder of General Gryaznov, directed by Ivani Perestiani, set in 1905 and is what it says on the tin. It has a bunch of interesting things about it, including the opening titles where you see the director lit in a cool way, like appear before you see any of the actual actors or characters. Great. And also it's cool to look at this like beautiful Georgian script, much like looking at Colour of Pomegranates and whatever. Oh, yeah. Of the three people who've reviewed this film on Letterboxd, you are one of them and the other two love to talk about all the gaffes um, and the sort of filmmaking errors and how it's, you know, miles away from Victor Sostrom's like high, high degree of professionality. But, you know, I thought it was pretty captivating. It made me want to, you know, be mm. be in a Soviet and uh, you know, commit myself <laughs> yeah. to a revolutionary cause. You know, yeah. I wanted to do that anyway. But I think it's worth looking at. It's an interesting artifact. And Russian cinema of the 1920s uh, or like the films in the Soviet Union in the 1920s, it went on to be, you know, some of the most striking, memorable films ever made. So it's cool to watch something like this. Yeah, definitely. I think it does anticipate certain aspects of Soviet filmmaking, which really hadn't reached its sort of maturity by that point. As you said, Eisenstein, it's literally like a couple of years later where, like, when was October? I think it's the year after. When stuff actually starts, like... October's every year, man. Like, montage and actually, like, stuff. 
<laughs> but I mean, yeah, it's a real contrast to the sort of like bourgeois liberal ideology that uh, dominates like pretty much every other national industry we're going to be discussing apart from Japan, which just, you know, had its own thing going on. Absolutely. <laughs> and it does have, you know, some of the most impressive crowd scenes of any of the films that we've seen from this year. Sure. Some good like factory strikey scenes, like uh, mobilization scenes. I remember when we were talking about Battleship Potemkin on the Tenet episode, something I was really struck by watching it in the cinema was like how hard it would be in my mind, to misinterpret what the film is saying to you. Mm. And I think that's another feature of this film as well. Sure. I mean, the murderer ultimately is a national martyr. Mm -hmm. And actually, there is a cool montage at the end, which reminded me of the way that, like, these sort of, like, violent revolutionary moments are handled in, like, later European films, just, like, very, like, close-ups on the guns and, like, body against a wall sort of like deconstructing that moment of violence and that was like the culmination of the film unambiguous you know <laughs> you know it's like a national episode or whatever i guess it sort of compares to like you know chic or something like that, that right we'll talk about or destiny <laughs> <laughs> i'm just gonna say at this convenient moment there were also a bunch of films made in india at this time also like egypt yeah other places that um you know europe is obviously dominates like history in general, we have such Eurocentric <laughs> perspectives or like Anglo, you know, mm -hmm. imperial perspectives. But yeah, exactly. The Indian film industry was like popping at this time, much like Japan, but there's a very poor survival rate and we couldn't watch anything. So I'm glad that we've got the murder of General Gryaznov just so we can put a <laughs> mark on the timeline between Lev Kuleshov and Sergei Eisenstein and Podovkin and those guys. Mm. Check it out. If you want to if you want to feel something for an hour, watch this shit. It's on YouTube. It's all on YouTube. We're going to turn now to Italy. There's one film that we watched from Italy from this period. A fragment, 25 minutes, of a film directed by a Frenchman, André Deed, called The Mechanical Man. Um, Italy had, like, an interesting sort of relationship with film at that point. They were, like, renowned for making these, like, mad historical epics. For Kiberia and stuff like that. Cinecitta was already built at this point, like, and it was the biggest film studios in the world. Mm. They were, you know, before Cecil B. DeMille, there was, like, the Italian film industry in terms of being synonymous with, like, splendour yeah. and being really, really long mm. as well. <laughs> I watched the first Italian feature film from 1911, which is an adaptation of The Inferno. Of course, they couldn't have done anything else for their first national film. And that was insane. I'd recommend that to anyone. Like, every single shot was a feat of bravura composition and filmmaking. And... It was just a mad experience, to be honest. Like, that's on YouTube, the Inferno film from 1911. Mm. And throughout the 1910s, like, despite the war, they were absolutely committed to, like, leading the world in really extravagant, insane filmmaking, much like you'd find today mm. in a CG sense, as opposed to in, like, a sort of handmade, labor-intensive 
still just as labor intensive or whatever but maybe the specter of the commodity is a bit less clear when you're watching like transformers or something like that however this film did remind me a lot (laughs) this film by the fact that it's a fragment um it did remind me a lot of like times that i've tried to watch like avengers in a flat before and just like pass out and then you wake up and now there's two robots and they're fighting each other and i'm like okay cool (laughs) yeah yeah. (laughs) i'm just gonna go with it and then it's over you have to roll with the punches with this one big time it's so (laughs) fragmentary it's like oh now they're in the hills with uh the gypsy woman or whatever the insight all happens you know or as you said oh now there are two robots it was it reminded me of like the terminator or something yeah yeah there was a great yeah. scene where the mechanical man, a sort of stereotypical boxy sort of toy looking robot, yeah. Uh, yeah. which is extremely crude, is like chasing a car down the motorway, like sprinting. And it's he's huge. It was scary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's quite a thing to behold, I think. I'd quite like to see this one projected just because I think mm. it would be a lot of fun. You know, this was a terrible copy as well as being fragmentary. Yeah. But it is a noteworthy film. I think it's interesting because, you know, I don't really know too much about futurism or, like, the fact that this film was made in, like, northern Italy and how big of a deal, like, manufacturing was to Italian, like, economy at the time. But also, like, Frankenstein by Mary Shelley was only written, like, 30 years before and had, like, really penetrated, like, people's imaginations by putting this sort of, like, Darwinistic thing against, like, the industrial revolution and technology and how like that is you know much like listening to the new grimes album and like the horrors that that gives you you know like it's a it's in a direct lineage but this Mm. is super entertaining and despite you're right it occupies a really weird place i think in italian history uh italian sort of cultural history between yeah these like epics and that sort of classical tradition and futurism the sort of violent (laughs) reaction to sort of traditional modes of representation Mm. futurism is the sort of aesthetic precursor to fascism it's a rejection yeah, exactly. it's a rejection of traditional aesthetic values that then extends yeah. into a rejection of um you know a sort of almost humanity an, like sort of nietzschean uh rejection of yeah. uh or, or sort of promotion of like will and like stuff like that mixed in with yeah. like it's so the manifestos are so weird they're like put on these crazy shows and then like some like really violent mantra it's very jarring to read it says it all because there's a good mechanical man and a bad one in this film right Mm. you know and it's like you're you're not supposed to think like oh mechanization and automation is like an evil like specter of the future or whatever it's just like progress in inverted commas Mm. or whatever such maybe the full length version like reckons with these questions a little bit more but as a 22 minute film that we're watching now it's really mad i think there are remnants of that sort of dialectical question Mm. especially in the mise-en-scene where um you know as i said some of it's set in like the mountains or more rural or pastoral communities or like itinerant ones Mm -hmm. And then the sort of urban, sort of bourgeois, sort of uh, city halls at where yeah, he's walking out of the up. palazzo. Yeah, um, uh, th- there's also another great set in this film, uh, the sort of control room for the robots. Yeah, where they have the film within the film projected yeah. on the wall, so they're like controlling it with all these like huge valves. 
and like um like levers and big mm. like wheels and stuff. It's like it's like modern times or something. But I was gonna say like Metro. It does have bits that remind me of Metropolis. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Metropolis is all about Moloch and about capital or whatever. And maybe the political sort of materialist critique was the first thing to go out of this film. <laughs> yeah, that was completely elided in the um copy that survives <laughs> to us. Yeah. It was just com- oh, oh, the only elements that survive are like the action, basically. Yeah, yeah. Which is super entertaining. As said, if you like Christopher Nolan movies, watch this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, as we've seen in 1921, the spectre of communism was no longer a spectre. It was, like, a reality. But another spectre loomed over European cinema, and that was American cinema, which, as we said, we'll discuss in another episode. In 1920, Emile Viermoz, uh, one of the sort of first writers or critics who moved away from, like... I think it was actually a composer that moved away from traditional sort of literary and, like, theatrical criticism to sort of film criticism, wrote... The French cinema is about to perish. Its demise is no more than a matter of months. French filmmakers then either will have to become Americanized under the guidance of the American film companies, harbingers of a regularized aesthetic, or else disappear... And I think the three films that we're going to talk about now from France in 1921 respond to that sort of cultural presence in different and like very interesting ways. That is such an amazing quote that you just read out, actually, (laughs) I think, just for what, you know, for what it anticipates. But I think, you know, conversely to that, people still bring up the Lumiere-Méliès dialectic all the time when they're talking about like fucking Marvel or whatever, or (laughs) Nomadland, or something like that. But there was a decisive break that was made, I guess, from people who read that quote, who read that critic, or just who wanted to do some extremely wavy shit with art and cinema. Yeah. We're talking about Deluc, Lerbier, and the guy that made Lantide. Yeah, I'd say Jacques Vider, um, who made. Uh, let, let's start with Latlantide because yeah. I think it's an it's an outlier and it's an adventure film that's notable for actually a number of reasons. They shot it in the Sahara. Yeah, it has loads of like black and Middle Eastern um, act like extras and uh, I mean you wouldn't say speaking roles, but I mean they they have an intertitle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that's notable it's a really long film 212 minutes is what i've got written here um for the copy that i watched and it's it's a real drag but again it's a frame story and it has some commendable aspects but i mean it's i guess it is sort of an orientalist adventure film definitely very far away from the more like sort of social like quintessentially french experiments that we see in in the other ones but it engages with colonialism like head on, right? At least to our eyes. I remember studying history in primary school and learning about like Howard Carter and like all these fucking curses of people who like excavated the pyramids and stuff Mm. like that as part of like a European colonialist venture. I guess the fact that this is all post-World War One makes this film feel even more regressive, but Mm. it certainly captures a vibe that 
you also see in things like Lawrence of Arabia or sure. um, Indiana Jones. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing with these adventure films that sort of exoticize. They sort of bridge modern sensibilities with uh, sort of fantastic subjects that are still like rooted in uh, history, even if it's like a problematic or um, erroneous view of history. The the premise of, of this is that like a sort of French colonialist, like I don't even know what his like a a, a lieutenant the, of some sort. No, what are they? They're called the the Elephantines, but the whole time it's like this is the cavalry in a John Ford film or something like that. Sure, but, you know, <laughs> sure they're just guys in pith caps riding around. Yeah, yeah. It's the Foreign Legion, something that still very much exists today. You cited a future armor episode in reference mm. to this uh, film. Yeah. It's, it's plot line earlier. Death by Snoo Snoo. Yeah, yeah, the Amazonians yeah. one. And it is that um, not only does it exoticize um, Middle Eastern culture, but, you know, it also is like a sort of the colonial officer's fantasy of like sort of lost matriarchal society in which, you know, the men are sort of kept objects yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Or the Disney film Atlantis, if you've seen that from, two, <laughs> from 2003. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, the originator of the Atlantis legend. This film is even more silly than Il Warmo Mechanical. Sure. Straight up, I think. And I didn't finish it. I'll put my hands up and admit that I didn't make it to the end of this film. Yeah. Um, earlier I alluded to its its uh similarity to, to Nolan. Um and that was purely based on a very stupid scene where they find like the coordinates of some sort of like a um, like some sort of acrostic, like sort of uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. like thing on a, on a cave wall in English or in in like Roman characters or whatever. Uh, yeah, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> Not much to say about it, rather than it being really instructive in illustrating the departures that Marcel Lerbier's El Dorado and right. Louis Deluc's Fever represent one more thing i would say is that i just realized that i've actually seen another film by jacques fader which you would actually love oh yeah which is called le kermesse heroique which is a medieval film about like a festival and it's like you know standard like love triangle like shakespeare mm. comedy vibes but much like the mill on the cross or like peter greenaway most of the shots are like trying to recreate compositions from Dutch masters. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like uh, Bro Bruegel and stuff. I remember going to see it at the BFI with O'Keefe and we were both like, oh, I was a bit disappointed by it mm. or whatever. But it's a big deal. And this film could have used with a bit more pictorial interest, I would say. A bit more yeah. <laughs> responsivity. There's another quote in um, the quote I I read from Emile Viamo, um comes from the film historian Richard Abel's anthology of French film writing, uh, Volume mm -hmm. One. That uh, uh, I think Volume Two picks up from the late twenties. There's another quote in here that says, "Fyder undoubtedly knows nothing of the Swedish films." <laughs> If he'd seen before guiding his uh, valiant caravan into the vast sands of the Sahara, his work would have been different and more complete. Sure. And we've watched some eight-minute fragments that are essentially incomplete, but Latlantide lacks in a sort of different way, a more sort of, you know, philosophical or aesthetic way. 
Yeah. <laughs> it was definitely my least favorite of everything we've watched for this series. Let's talk about Viev. Great. Louis de Luc was a really important figure in in French cinema mm. and I guess the sort of progenitor of what's known as French Impressionist cinema alongside Germain uh, Dulac. Yeah. A woman filmmaking pioneer. Uh, we couldn't access any 1921 works. I think there was one, but I watched a bit of her 1919 film, The Cigarette, which um, was wavy. Anyway. Fine title. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Deluc was a critic and a writer. He published in 1923, uh, like, film scenarios, like, a guy that was working to popularise it as a sort of legitimate art form. Yeah. And this film, Fever, it's only 43 minutes and it feels pretty truncated. It's you know, it's all set in a bar. It's like the Satan Tango bar scene, isn't it? It sure is. <laughs> it's all just about the sort of energy in the bar and like a few like sort of symbolist moments. Yeah. It had this like a uh, world star quality to it, I think. You know, <laughs> where yeah. the, the br- it's all about the brawl or like the quiet man or something like that. It's like the spectacle mm. is generated by like the intensity of this fight. But yeah. that's not all of it. Like, the prologue was super cool. It's set in Marseille and like it's predicated on a woman's like old flame who's a sailor like coming back to town with his new uh, oriental wife. All of that narratively was handled so confusingly. Yeah, but it didn't. The one I watched didn't have intertitles. I think there is a version that does have intertitles, but. Nor did mine. And it felt very heavily edited. Yeah. In fact, um, Deluc, there's an article, I don't think it's translated, but you can access it. I think we'll post that in the description as well. Um, and it's an account of shooting that in the studio. And it just mm. sounds like it's a very ironic take on like studio sh- work in that period. Yeah. And like, you know, studio intervention and like interference and stuff like that as well. Two things I would say to that is that like the monkey in this film oh, yeah. performs beautifully for the camera. And, you know, he's got his head on his shoulders and clearly delivered the performance that Deluc wanted. <laughs> the other thing was that the bits of Deluc's writing that I've encountered in researching for this episode, he's such a good writer about film. Like, way before, mm. like, Godard or Truffaut or, like, any of these, like, direct filmmaker slash critics. Like, mm. I guess that is a particular, like, French quality. He's just a proper filmmaker who wasn't afraid to also have a critical voice about cinema and other people's films and his own films he's a proper theory and practice guy i watched another film he made produced in 1921 but released in 22 the woman from nowhere is what it's called Mm. it looks so sick yeah it was mad it's about like an older woman that like goes to an old country house that she used to live in and a couple live there and the guy's going away on a business trip and the young woman is trying to have uh, her lover round, mm-hmm. but the older woman like ends up staying round and just like sort of witnessing this dalliance and her memories of like her doing the same thing there, mm. interact like crossfade with like the images she's seeing. Subjectivity is such an important thing in this nascent film art, and I think that's something we see in both The Woman from Nowhere and Fever, and certainly in El Dorado. Yeah, The Woman from Nowhere looks so sick. I can't wait to watch it for next year's episode. Yeah. I guess both Fever and The Woman from Nowhere were made with his wife as the starring role. And I think every film he made starred his wife in a sort of archetypal performance. But the other thing about mm. Deluc is that like he died pretty young from tuberculosis. Two years after Woman from Nowhere came out, in like 24, I think it was, like really at the height of, you know, at the beginning of his career even. Yeah, he's in the 27 Club. Damn. 
didn't know that. He's a legendary figure in France and still has like a very famous prize named after him for that. But when I was watching Fever, I couldn't escape how this sort of mode of filmmaking reached its apotheosis in La Talente by Jean Vigo. The first five minutes of this film felt a lot like Apropos de Nice by the same filmmaker, but he also died very young. But his stamp on French filmmaking was just like unbelievably huge. People still reference it today all the time. And it's in this sort of like canon of what they call poetic realism in inverted commas. Or impressionism, again, is instructional as a term to use. Um, it's certainly what's ascribed to a lot of these filmmakers, including Abel Gantz, who we will be talking about mm. on future episodes. Yeah, yeah. Which I guess is it's about like using lighting and film technique to like accentuate emotions mm. and mm -hmm. psychological states, but in a more sort of like in camera way, or like where the art, the mise en scène feeds into that in a way realer way than these sort of like psychological Norse films that we've Norse Scandinavian films that we've <laughs> yeah um, and it's handled in a completely different way in El Dorado before we get to El Dorado I'd just back up that little genealogy I'd, I'd chuck in serials as part of it um I haven't really watched any Foyard oh but, man uh, well I guess that's a whole other thing but I mean in the interwar uh, sorry during the first world war like before the French started making these impressionist films and then mm. making surrealist films which then sort of I guess culminated or like sort of branched off into poetic realism in the mm. later silent period the serials like are the sort of first step in that and like they all take like a sort of like weird position where it's like you want to make art films but you also like it's like the new wave guys that love john ford it's sort of right. like that but then at the same right. time there's a sort of antagonistic relationship between them like Deluc loved cecil b demille movies and in that richard abel anthology you can see loads of very engaged interactions with american cinema so yeah it's a complicated relationship phantomaz was the best film i've seen in 2021 well, i watched Great. all six hours of it on a saturday afternoon and it was a real highlight of the year, dear listener. I'll lend you my DVD if you want to borrow that shit. <laughs> it was so sick. Um, these are all available on YouTube as well. In actually really nice copies. In a more COVID safe way than borrowing yeah, the DVD. Let's not even get into the serials though. Because no. I think that warrants its whole other um, sort of examination. Maybe a Patreon episode. Coming to you. Let's, <laughs> let's talk about Marcel Lerbier's... El Dorado. I read a Jonathan Rosenbaum article. Um, I, I'm not actually sure when it was first published. Maybe in the 90s even. Mm. And he was talking about how Labia was pretty much unknown outside of France, despite his huge contributions to cinematography and the sort of institutionalization of film in France. But I mean, what Rosenbaum was saying in that article is that, like, obviously, like DVD home media was like sort of changing the game. Now we can watch really nice copies of El Dorado on. Mm. I mean, I watched it on like archive.org. I think like it's just there. It's shot in Granada, I think. It was shot at the Alhambra. It was the first film to be shot there. Yeah. Yeah, so the crazy Andalusian settings are just, it's mad. Um, let's just quickly do a little plot rundown. It's about like a sort of club dancer. Her kid is ill. They're mm -hmm. like alienated from the sort of bourgeois father. A painter comes to town and there's a sort of like love triangle situation. And ultimately it's a sort of tragic story that mm -hmm. ends in death. Um, that's a recurrent theme throughout these <laughs> films we'll talk about that more next episode with the germans 
Yeah, you can't escape the tiresome death. Just in terms of like achieving subjectivity in film, though, like this is a real coup de gras. Like, ugh. I have never seen anything like this, but it did clearly anticipate both Large Door with the setting and Last Year at Marion Bad by Alain Rene. I think mm. he's like cited this film's influence on that, but I've never seen anything like this film before. No. Wavy is the word, right? hundred percent man i mean look fever is like pretty much all set in this bar mm-hmm. and el dorado matches that with some extremely energetic like sort of basement bar vibes mm-hmm. like really uh, extremely musical scenes even though it's silent, like people playing music mm-hmm. people playing castanets dancing mm-hmm. and just like motion like you can really feel it um but it goes so much beyond that to like these uh like sort of manipulations of the film image to represent like the painter's gaze of like the colonnade oh yeah and his like romantic imagination lots of like sort of uh like sort of tiered staging which mm. was almost like through superimposition where like against like a black background her like ill kid is in the foreground and then in the background you can see her writing but it's like illuminated and like yeah. so spectral there are some crazy, like, cubist intertitles. Oh. <laughs> with literally, like, cubist paintings in the background. Yeah. Also, other inter- cool intertitle stuff with, like, wipes on the intertitles and, like, scrolling images on the intertitles and stuff yeah. like that. Like, intertitles are a space where, like, that sort of creative energy can be expressed. And this is a film that really did that. Whereas, like, some of the other ones, like... I mean, some of them we just see, like, intertitles that are, like done on a computer like today but some of them that survive like are more prosaic and some of them they're actually using it as a way to like express like a coherent artistic vision and this film does that in such a cool way (laughs) it's my favorite film that we've talked about today by quite a margin i think but that's because we're showing the german films but Mm. yeah it was breathtakingly creative and it's easy to see it as part of this movement of modernism like an urban phenomenon that was so going on in Paris in the 1920s. Sure. Gertrude Stein, T.S. Eliot, James Joyce, that kind of thing. New ways of seeing and delineating storytelling and art. Sure. And language. Yeah, exactly. It so is that as like a sort of avant-garde in film rather than literature or mm-hmm. uh, painting like cubism or something like that. As you said, in El Dorado, like it literally incorporates like cubist imagery and stuff into it mm-hmm. um, to like sort of demonstrate that like affiliation with those sorts of like representational strategies. This is like classic, like the lost generation or whatever. I think in like sick form, I read Ernest Hemingway's Unmovable Feast. <laughs> Uh, which I really loved at the time, but I expect would be really cringy to read now. But it's a sort of interesting depiction of that milieu and in the wake of the First World War, when so much destruction had been wrought. In terms of like literally everything, every sort of order you can imagine had been disrupted in one way or another. And if you think of like any of these literary strategies in terms of like subverting like conventional narrative, like Joyce, as you said, or like other like stream of consciousness writing in like Virginia Woolf or something like that. These films like have the same sort of function in terms of how they use editing, especially to put together their stories i haven't actually read a movable feast but i have seen woody allen's midnight in paris <laughs> so 
I'd recommend that to any listeners who want some context or maybe just some fun with Owen Wilson. Uh, about as far from the Somme as you can get, I think. Sure, but I guess this was a time where like all those war poems like uh, Wilfred Owen, Siegfried Sassoon were like being published only in 1920 or whatever. So people were still actively reckoning with mm. World War One and mechanized slaughter mm. and gas and all, all of these things, you know. Not to invoke uh, Ford again, but one of my favorite uh, Ford films we watched was his film Pilgrimage, an early sound film, I think from 33 or something like that, about a woman whose son, she like sends him off to, to fight and die, basically, and then she like goes over and like has to reconcile with like the loss. These are artistic responses to it, way more than like... <laughs> You know, we spoke about uh, Lantide. Sam Mendes. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, way more than Sam Mendes. Exactly. Exactly. They don't reconcile with the topic of, of war, though. I mean, I guess Avogons did that, um, but these yeah. films don't. It's more about, like, the condition of having gone through it rather than, like, reconciling with it directly. The mass psychological damage. Uh, we'll talk about that more in our Germany episode. <laughs> Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> but all I can say is just watch watch this film. Like, if you like any sort of art film, avant-garde film, you'll get so much out of watching El Dorado, despite having, like, quite a traditional, intense, stagey plotline and, like, characters. Mm. But the filmmaking techniques that are thrown into the making of this film must have felt absolutely revolutionary at the time, responding to that quote that you were... Uh, reading at the start of this segment. Sure, these guys, Lerbier, Deluc, uh, and Germain Delac, became the sort of hope of French cinema mm. through their aesthetic challenges to like normal American, like straightforward, cross cutting, like yeah. Yeah. AB reverse shot cinematography. Like, this is experimental avant garde. It's worth saying that uh, Abel Gonce's Jacques came out a couple of years before the year that we're talking about. But yeah. that's also a huge thing. And when you watch Napoleon, that is full of this sort of approach of like in-camera distortion, subjectivity. Impressionism, I guess, is the word that is used. But I like this a lot more than the paintings of Monet, for example. Right. I mean, this is about humans. Yeah. It's about people. Yeah, that's it. And it's... That's it. I guess in the... In painting, impressionism is about the painter's subjective, yeah. whereas in this, it's about the character's subjectivity. Yep. And, you know, that can only be conveyed through... If it's not being conveyed through language, it's being conveyed through images, and they do it in a mad way. You killed it. <laughs> El Dorado, 98 minutes of gold, of colonial gold. <laughs> And look, it bears. We we disparage Latlantide for its sort of colonial, imperial mise en scene mm. and like sort of character motivations. El Dorado is um, presents like a sort of romantic vision of Andalusia. It also includes some like really interesting like sort of actualité, like sort of like street liturgical Easter processions and stuff like that. Documentary footage, like yeah, yeah. yeah. It was like medium cool, right? You know, it like yeah, had to be yeah. shot. It <laughs> yeah. had to capture a, a particular vibe that was going on at the streets at that time, or anticipating like neorealism. I think it does do that. Yeah. Although the subjectivity is like such a key element, including like visual distortion and the way that relates to like sort of fantasy and stuff like that. Also, the clown guy is so scary, man. So threatening. Yeah. Like, 
Yeah. And that's me watching this as a man, you know, I think it'd be even more that sort of sexual threat element to the plot is uh, palpable. Yeah. That is like a creepy character. And all the characters, like, there are loads of fleshed... Ugh. Would you describe them as fleshed out characters? Not really. Like, it's sort of hard to get their motivations beyond, like, the main character's, like, maternal instinct, but... They're artistic subjects in the truest sense. I can't believe all I wanted to do was cover track two of Tommy, and now we've watched all these sick films. Like, it's mad, you know? And <laughs> we've barely skimmed the surface, you know? We've watched way more films than this, but I've really enjoyed doing this episode, Sam. Part one of three. Yeah, thank you for picking... Uh, the Phantom Carriage for Film Club those months ago. I wish I'd picked El Dorado, but, you know. <laughs> that would have been a real winner, I think. Yeah. Nah, probably not, actually. <laughs> I'd say, if you've listened to this episode to the end, go and treat yourself to a bit of El Dorado. Like, it's, uh, it's a yeah. real feat of filmmaking. And I'd say, go and watch Souls on the Road as well, because that was really great, too. Sure. We will include a full filmography for the films we've discussed so far in our 1921 series would you expect anything less dear listener (laughs) and please tune in for our next installment which will be coming soon maybe not next episode but (laughs) coming this year i I know we've made false promises on this podcast before but this we fully (laughs) intend to make good on we're not just gonna leave we're not gonna cancel charlie chaplin (laughs) there's nothing one could cancel charlie chaplin for (laughs) (laughs) there's nothing you could cancel um bernard gutzka for (laughs) What did he? What did he do? Oh, he was a Nazi, was a Nazi wasn't he? Yeah, he stayed. He didn't leave. Yeah, dickhead. Uh, Same with uh, Thea von Harbu, no? Is that really? Yeah, yeah, I think she didn't. She she stuck around as well. Lil Dagover. Yeah. Honestly, bro, there was points where you're watching a scene from Destiny and you're like, you're literally all Nazis. Anyway, you can look forward to a bit of this on the next episode. Of... <laughs> no, nah, it's not going to be the next one. On. <laughs> We're gonna talk. We're gonna do our fucking awards films one. Aren't you excited to talk about the trial of the Chicago Seven and promising young woman? I can't wait. Oh my god! Do I actually have to watch those films, Emmett? Uh, I'm afraid. Yeah, you do. I'm sorry. And we're gonna do our Zoltan Fabry episode soon as well, and Irish language cinema. So don't go anywhere, dear listener. So much coming up. Workmeister harmonies, best years of our lives. We have got loads of great episodes coming up. You might wanna start putting a few pounds in your piggy bank every month. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Start watching German Expressionist films because, you know, it might be nice if you've seen <laughs> Dmitry Bukovsky's <laughs> Sappho, the film I watched the other day, or Richard Oswald's Lady Hamilton. So many classics from German cinema, no 21. The Wildcat by <laughs> Ernest Lubitsch is one of the best films I've ever seen. I can't wait to talk about that. Yeah, there are some the there are some legitimate recommendations from 921. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Enjoy this song by The Who. Thanks for listening. <laughs> I've been Emmett. I'm Sam. I have a feeling 21's going to be a good year if you and me see it in together.
2021's gonna be a good year Be good for me and her, you and her, no, never I had no reason to be over-optimistic, yeah But somehow when you smiled I can brave bad weather about the boy. 